Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Podcast. Short and sweet. This week we are returning once again to the three-in-one antiques romance novel, The Boardwalk Antiques Shop, for the third and final novella, A Stitch in Time. Can I say I am already going to miss this place? (laughs) Really? It's been so bad, but in that fun, marked way... Usually when a book is bad, it's just bad, and it's not, like, entertaining, and this has been the entertaining kind. This is, like, the room. (laughs) This is the room of antiques-themed romance novels? Yeah, I'm gonna miss, like, having something to say about a bad story. Tune in soon for our survey of bad antiques-themed creepypastas. (laughs) God, I cannot wait. But yes, from the blurb. Tangerine Street is a must-see tourist stop with a colorful mix of -of one-of-a-kind boutiques, unique restaurants, eclectic museums, quaint bookstores, and exclusive bed and breakfasts. The Boardwalk Antique Shop is an exclusive shop where every antique has a story, and each story possesses the gift to match true love. The customer who buys an antique also buys its story, and soon discovers that its story unites the past with the present, creating an unexpected romantic future. And for A Stitch in Time specifically... When Kate learns that antiques dealer Henry Lancaster has purchased the sewing machine left to her by her grandmother, Kate is determined to get it back. What she isn't counting on is that Henry has just as much claim as Kate. And it doesn't help that Henry is good-looking and apparently single. Getting to know Henry becomes an unexpected surprise, sending her life into a sudden detour. So, two things I want to get off my chest right at the top of this podcast. Give it to us. I don't hate straight people. I am an ally to the straight community. Some of my best friends are straight. You just wish they didn't shove it down your throat? I would tell you their names, but I don't want to come out for them. You know, that's their business if they want to tell people they're straight. True. I have straight parents. My own sister is straight. I have a great deal of respect for straight people and their lifestyle. (laughs) But? This... Particular straight romance, I feel, does not necessarily represent the community as I feel they deserve. Agreed. The second thing I want to get off my chest is that looking at this trilogy of novellas as a whole, it feels like they were each written in a day in a single draft at gunpoint. (laughs) Okay, all right, yeah, I was actually... I was going to bring up that there is a rushed quality to the plotting that makes me feel a little dizzy, and uh, I believe that's the same vibe that you've just described in a much better way. Rushed and also taking random dips and turns that are in no way foreshadowed and also go nowhere. Because in A Stitch in Time in particular, we have a man who meets a woman And then gets accosted by another woman from his past, tells her he's not interested in her, so she leaves. And then his ex-wife shows up, and then three pages later, after, I don't know, half a paragraph of angst, he tells her that he doesn't want her either, so she leaves, and instead he gets with the girl whose name is actually on the back of the book. Yeah, that was frustrating. (laughs) It felt like an outline for a different book that would need to be edited before it got fleshed out, you know? Yeah, like a like a nano remo kind of project. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you've got all these bare bones. This is great. We can tackle this together into something nicer. So this 
series of novellas was authored by three people, Julie Wright, Melanie Jacobson, Heather B. Moore. They don't specify who wrote which story or if they collaborated on all three stories, which would be intensely stressful, I think. It might explain why they're so all over the place. But um, I wonder who of the three said to the other three, we should write three books about antiques. Because presumably that would be the one of the three who was actually invested in antiques. But none of these stories read like anyone writing them cared about antiques at all. I posit that the third story is the likely culprit of caring about antiques, however little. But it has the least information about antiques and also the least, like, inside baseball feeling of antiques, you know? Wait, you think that the third story has the least information about antiques? Well, no. Okay. If I had to rank, I would say first story... Message in a Bottle, most antiques. We went over that in depth in the first episode on this. Second most involved in antiques would be this one, A Stitch in Time, because it does center around an antique sewing machine. And third, distant third for antiques involvement would be Solving for X, wherein the antique toy soldiers could be replaced by bottle caps found on the sidewalk and change nothing in the story. That's fair. I just, I want to know why they wrote this, because it wasn't because they enjoyed antiques. You can theme your romance novel about anything. Anything in the world. Like, throw a dart at a board whenever it lands on, that's the thing. You want to write a romance novel about firefighters? You want a romance novel about teachers? You want a romance novel about murderers? You want a romance novel about... Wait, no. Hang on. (laughs) Yeah, you want that? You want a romance novel about chess masters? You want a romance novel about pharmacists? You want a romance novel about... Ken, Ken, somewhere... Somewhere there's a team of writers writing this all down. You gotta be careful. That's fine. They can do that because if they find a subject they're genuinely interested in, it will prevent them from writing books like this. I had the same thought and the conclusion I came to was that antiques are related to people dying and people dying was the most expedient way to get all of their characters to this unlikely scene and place. I think it was the setting they were really in love with and dead people were very much the only way they could seem to get people in. <laughs> Nobody died in the middle story. Yeah, but the middle story basically didn't belong in this. <laughs> I'm sorry whoever wrote it. <laughs> but like, it, it should have been excised like a tumor. It didn't belong. It doesn't fit the vibe. Well, let's, let's go over story number three, because that's, that's what brought us here today. Much like the deaths of fictional people brought these fictional people <laughs> to this beachside resort town. So... We've got our heroine, Kate Pierpont, whose grandmother has just died, a grandmother she was very close to. Kate was unfortunately out of the country because she works as a travel writer. So by the time she got back home, her aunts and uncles and cousins had already made arrangements that unfortunately she didn't quite agree with because in her initial communications with these relatives, she said, hey, whatever you do, just make sure you save the sewing machine. I really want that sewing machine. It means a lot to me. Grandma taught me to sew on it, and working on that sewing machine helped me through the grief of my parents dying. Like, I really want that sewing machine specifically. Like, whatever else, fine, but just make sure you save the sewing machine for me, please. And then she arrives at her grandmother's house sometime later to find that her cousin has just sold the sewing machine. So the story does start off with some very real, raw, ripped-from-the-diary-pages emotion that feels sincere. And then you find out that the sewing machine was a 1926 Singer sewing machine and sold for $1,500. All right. That's already where I think that this is the person who cared the most about antiques because the Singer 
it's specifically the 1926 singer 1530 Treadle, Tiffany Treadle. Yes. Which is so specific, I cannot help but just sort of assume that it was born out of a genuine love for this particular model of sewing machine. Is that particular model of sewing machine worth $1,500? Well, no, they... (laughs) That's the thing, like, those of you who've listened to our other conversations on antique sewing machines, and perhaps our upcycling episode, or our valuing antique sewing machines episodes, most of them aren't worth much. I was able to find examples of some sewing machines from this era in the $1,200 to $1,300 range. It is worth noting that over the course of quarantine, sewing machines have markedly increased in value because a lot of people have been doing a lot of home sewing. But even then, I couldn't find anything approaching $1,500. $1,500 is still extremely high. And granted, the sewing machine, as described in the book, is a model in working condition and well kept up and cared for throughout its working life. But $1,500? So, like, when Henry is defending himself, he says, I paid three times what it's worth. Which still puts you at an unusual $500 price tag. That's still pretty high for any given vintage or antique sewing machine. Especially considering when you listen to the narrative being told of the beloved sewing machine, it doesn't seem like it was in awesome shape. She has to literally fix it before she can use it. So this isn't like a new inbox, like, old new stock situation. Yeah, and the 1200 1300 sewing machines I was looking at were very much new inbox condition. One of them came with, like, the manual perfectly preserved still and, like, advertising cards to sell the machine. Yeah. And that was 1200 and the $1,300 one was in similar condition and also had all of the original gilding, so all of the, like, hand-painted design work in red and gold all over the stunning, gleaming black sewing machine. Called gingerbread. Gingerbread. I don't know why. The inferior cookie. Wow. Wow. Pennsylvania Dutch sugar cookies are go home. Anyway. Pennsylvania Dutch invented molasses for what? <laughs> they didn't invent molasses. They invented shoe fly ply in what I am assuming was a prank on the English that they just haven't given away the joke for yet. Yeah, I did look for the specific model. I couldn't find any at any price point above 400 It seems 500 is like the extreme upper limit for these in your run-of-the-mill how-you-would-find-them condition. Yes. So that does lead me to my next conspiracy point. Uh Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure they did a couple of rough Googles of the price and grabbed the highest one that they found. (laughs) Because I did find 500 like sort of being bandied around as the upper limit for the Singer models 15 something, 15 through 27, I think. So I I have reason to believe, and by just typing an antique sewing machine, I pretty reliably replicated finding the upper limit price of 500. (laughs) So, which does complicate my theory that this is the person that cared about antiques. And I feel lends more credence to my theory of forced to include the theme of antiques at gunpoint. So, but how did they come up with such a specific model of sewing machine? Because, and I'm just spitballing here, that was the kind their actual grandmother owned. Because those are the details through the book that rang true and personal. Whereas everything else is more kind of a general flat color wash rather than an intricate word painting. Alright, that's fair. So this sewing machine is purchased by the antiques dealer from the first story, Henry Lancaster III. 
who gave that heroine two tickets to an Imagine Dragons concert. <laughs> Which they did do again. <laughs> yeah. Those tickets reemerge in this story. There's still no explanation for them. They still affect nothing about the plot. No one goes to the Imagine Dragons concert, but rest assured. The two tickets are passed along. They confuse quite a bit to me because as this story, we get to know the gentleman who gives her the Imagine Dragon tickets and there is nothing about his personality or life that explains how he got them. Or even how he would know that, that they were a band. the owner of the antique shop likes the band because it's like the second time he sees her in his life yeah. that he gives her these Imagine Dragons. <laughs> Literally the second time. All of the other people in his life are, like, stunningly upper class, which is, like, sadly extremely true for, like, developing the character of an upscale antiques dealer. And I cannot, I cannot figure out where he picked up these Imagine Dragon tickets. It was like, I better give these to the new girl. And it's not like he won on Ticketmaster. These are physical tickets. He hands them over. Yeah, he had to get them somewhere. He had to go to someone who had a Ticketmaster account and purchase them. Or, like, to the venue. I don't know. Where did he go? I wanted so badly when they in, then they reintroduced the Imagine Dragon tickets. I wanted so badly an explanation of where they came from, and I got nothing. That was the true romance for me, and I'll never be satisfied. Oh no! So Henry buys this particular sewing machine because it's just like the one his grandmother described selling during the Great Depression, and how sad she was to lose that machine. So he's bought almost exact mattress machine, weird that, to give to his mother for her birthday. Spoiler alert, yes, it's the exact same machine. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. As a plot point, I think it's cute. It's very cute. It's a cute way to get these characters together and show that their past is intertwined with their present and their future. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun and I like it. <laughs> Wish I liked the rest of the story. The parts that center around the sewing machine are good. <laughs> That's true, yeah. The, the more it focuses on the sewing machine, the more I enjoyed the narrative. So they meet again at the antique store where Kate is trying desperately to buy the sewing machine back. And Henry insists that he's not giving up this machine in particular. And through this, they go through their own family histories and discover, yes, the machines are one and the same. It's not just a machine like grandma's. It is grandma's. And oh my god, their grandmas are interconnected. How crazy is that? And then they're like, hey... Let's go on a date. And then Henry's mother comes home with his high school sweetheart. For unknown reasons. For unknown reasons. I'm assuming because the romance was going a little too smoothly and this was the only way the author could think of to spice it up. Oh no, it wasn't. They do it again later. Spoilers. So, yes. And this, I must preface this again by saying, I don't hate straight people. <laughs> Their life choices are valid. But. Let me just give you a quick preview of what went through my brain as we were introduced to the character of Henry Lancaster. Because the thing about antiques is when you meet a young, handsome, successful antiques boy and he's a bachelor, you make certain assumptions. Yeah. That in the antiques industry are not necessarily off base because for whatever reason we do have a larger presence in the antiques industry than one would expect from our general presence in the general population, you know? I certainly wouldn't look at a young, successful antiques dealing bachelor and say, well, I bet he's on the market for a straight person. Yeah, I wouldn't assume he was looking for ladies is the thing. 
And even as Henry Lancaster is, a recent divorcee, I wouldn't assume was looking for women necessarily. I would maybe assume that he had divorced his wife because he had discovered something about himself. Yeah, that would only bolster my suspicions. And these suspicions were not necessarily laid to rest when the author gave me uh, Henry's internal monologue as it relates to his ex-wife and also his ex-girlfriend before he married said ex-wife. Yeah, the history of his ex-wife is the most suspicious thing I've ever read in my life. From Henry's point of view, while Erica was a beautiful and talented woman, there had never been any spark between them. She's perfect for him on paper, and yet somehow he doesn't quite feel it with her. Interesting. The more he thought about it, the more he realized he might have rushed things a little with Adela in order to escape Erica. (laughs) So, because he doesn't want to date his girlfriend, he marries a woman he doesn't want to marry just so he doesn't have to date women anymore. This is the male hero... Of our straight romance. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Don't all men do that? And I wonder how much of it is just the problem of writing from, and I'm making a lot of assumptions about the author here, the perspective of a straight woman. I wonder how much of it is that because for a very long time, the romance genre in general never really focused on the perspective of the hero. It was always from the perspective of the heroine. And only, like, in the last 30, 20, 30 years or so has it kind of flipped into a more equal hero-heroine, like, alternating chapter style. And I think some authors are good at imagining what it feels like for a man to find a woman desirable. And some straight women struggle with understanding what about women is romantically desirable. (laughs) (laughs) You know. And as a result... Sometimes they write a romantic hero for their female lead who doesn't really seem particularly interested in women as anything other than friends. Perhaps much as the author isn't really particularly interested in women as anything other than friends. (laughs) Well, you know, we have some parallels here. Even in his descriptions of Kate, our heroine, whom he gets with at the end. He likes her because he likes her. She's different from the other one because she's just different. If I didn't know this was a romance novel in the romance genre, I would assume he was making his third mistake in this vein before he figured himself out at long last. I was just imagining how easily this would be retooled into, like, his bisexual awakening. Or even his gay awakening because he doesn't seem particularly interested in any of these women. He's kind of into Kate. He's kind of into Kate. He seems to genuinely get on with Kate. He sure does like to talk to her, yeah. He kisses her multiple times and isn't repulsed. Which, sometimes, when you're just still figuring yourself out, you think that's probably enough. That's probably how most people feel about this. Right? Right? Right. Everyone feels like this. Everyone feels like just okay is good enough and no one could ever possibly feel more passion than this. This is love, right? Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah, sure. So they're going to be together forever now. It's fine. It's fine. I don't need to question my life or choices any further than this. This is fine. It's okay. The problem is you know he's straight because he keeps talking about how he wants to have kids to the point where you actually start understanding why his marriage failed because he knows this woman for three days and says that to her. (laughs) 
So that's how you know he's straight. We know he's straight because the author tells us he's straight, and also no gay people exist in this universe of antique dealers somehow. Well, he's the only antique dealer in this universe. Somehow, they go to an antiques convention. Yeah, by the way, I have some thoughts. And don't encounter any gay people of any gender or any sexual expression. Like, none. I'm trying to imagine... What an antiques convention straights only would look like. Probably a lot like the fictitious convention that she's crafted in her head. <laughs> because that's not what they're like. Um. <laughs> yeah, do, do tell, dude. Please critique this fictional antiques convention because I was reading through it and I was like, this feels more like the kind of seminar you go to when you're an insurance broker. So there's a lot of beige hotel rooms like boardrooms, meeting rooms that you go through. I was surprised when the word convention was used, but then it was just like, whatever, people call shows all kinds of different things. I was flummoxed when she was given a VIP pass because I was It like, feels like a corporate trade show. VIP to what, madam? <laughs> yeah, like what? What is the what is, what is the VIP section of the antiques show? Oh my god, wait, D, sorry. I just had I just got hit with the clue by four. D. Wow. You've been to Book Lovers Con. Uh thank you. Yes, my next point was going to be as someone who's been to both antique trade shows and a book lovers convention made for writers to reach out to new readers. Guess what the convention read like to me? <laughs> guess which one? <laughs> was literally i think they just grabbed the only con like the convention concept they knew and then they were like it's the same for every industry right because like i fucking sat there for fucking 15 minutes trying to figure out what the vip experience at a trade show would be <laughs> like even if i had if you if you put a gun to my head and you were like make me an antique convention exactly like the book lovers convention <laughs> i still don't know what the vip package would include what does VIP status at Brimfield look like? VIP status at Brimfield is having the extra cash to hire someone to port the stuff back to your car. Hey, uh. Not even kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, VIP status, well, A, it's not a real thing. You know, you don't get it. You get what? Like, what? A lanyard? She got a lanyard to identify herself? <laughs> At this antiques convention, so people could tell she was VIP at the antiques convention. Maybe, okay, maybe this is like, maybe this is just like the level of antiques we're on? It's possible this exists, like, on the West Coast with the upper crust, but I'm going to go ahead and call it not plausible. Okay. Because, like, I, you know, I've known some even of the big mucky mucks, and they don't, they've never, I don't know if this, I don't know, maybe, like, maybe the people over at, like, Skinner and all that, maybe they're... This is like a big fucking secret that the rest of us proles aren't supposed to know about. But I don't think it's ever happened, and I don't believe it. Um, feel free to correct me. Uh, I would be stunned. I'd love to hear it. And please invite me to the next one if you know about these. Write in, antiquesreekspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> they give her a lanyard. But yeah, this is the blandest antiques experience I've ever heard of like there are so many sellers and none of them have any personality or stock and they all sell item like one woman sells hats and we get a bare bones description of these hats and i thought okay well this is from kate's perspective and she's on an antiques person so obviously it wouldn't make sense for her point of view to describe the antiques in depth because she wouldn't realistically have that knowledge so when the next 
scene switched over to Henry's perspective, I was like, okay, now we'll get the full run of everything here at the thing. But the only thing he's thinking about is Kate and how he's so glad she showed up because of the three women who are desperately pursuing him, she is the least worst. And that's almost the same thing as good. I was fine with it for the first three sellers, but as it kept going, it started to become a little bizarre. Because, like, yes, you do get people, especially at trade shows, who narrow down their merchandise. And usually trade shows are are generally narrowed down around a theme. Like, you know, there's doll shows, so on and so forth. So I was like, okay, one, okay, two, three, wait, what? And then it was just everyone collects one thing, and they all have the best of that thing. So apparently you're, like, you're lanyarded with, like, what company you're working for. So she walks in and she's like, hey, what's this? And he says, get out of here, I don't sell to dealers. At an antiques convention for dealers? Yeah. What? I don't sell to dealers at the dealers convention for dealers? Who did you think was coming? What are you doing here? Are you trying to say- Every seller was selling their personal collection- it's such an interwoven, interconnected industry based on, like, human relationships. Like, if you say, go away, I don't sell the dealers. At a dealer's event. <laughs> you don't get to buy from that dealer or any of that dealer's friends. Like, what are you talking about? There's parts of it that track fairly well, and then there's just parts of it that are so fucking bizarre. There are, like, small shops who do not like to handle dealers because dealers always expect discounts and special treatment. So I could see not catering to dealers, but what I can't imagine is going to a dealer's trade show, which seems to be for dealers exclusively, and then saying, get out of here. I don't sell the dealers. It's so weird. Like he says, like, oh, I'm just re- looking to rehome my collection with people who will care. So you're not an antiques dealer, you're a guy. Like, D, you know how I feel about Antiques Roadshow. It does a hell of a job of putting me to sleep, but... Even Antiques Roadshow is more colorful and vibrant than this. But you didn't even bring up that apparently our handsome hero was on Antiques Roadshow. No, he wasn't on Antiques Roadshow. He was on the popular Antiques program that travels around a lot. That's true. Yeah. It's never mentioned by name. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, TM, 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 TM. (laughs) Which makes things very awkward because there's a limited number of popular antiques programs that everyone has seen that revolve around traveling around the country looking at antiques in different places. <laughs> it would be pretty funny if they got sponsored by, like, like Flea Market Flip. <laughs> and that's what he was from. The Flea Market Thrift doesn't go anywhere. They're just in New York. Which is why their pricing makes no goddamn sense. Like I said, that's one of the weird details that feels so bizarre and yet like it's very easy to know antique celebrities because no one cares (laughs) (laughs) like i guarantee you could have a you could have a beer with the kino twins and except for the fact that they were driving drunk not know it it's like i've known a bunch of people who've been presenters on antiques roadshow the u.s version of course like so like that that on that hand it's like oh it's not too you know it's not quite like oh he's the it's every member of bts has fallen in love with their heroine (laughs) But on the other hand, he's just so strange. <laughs> and this, and this, this corner of the antiques world he occupies is so fucking strange. And when I think West Coast, when I think Southern California, I don't think that's where the blandest people congregate. The people who blend into the scenery. The wallflowers go to Southern California to sell antiques. Straight ones, even. <laughs> yes, especially. <laughs> What is happening in this book? 
there's even a line where they're just like, there's not a lot of international collectors who come through anymore. And I'm like, in, in LA? We're in a city everyone routinely forgets exists on the East Coast. And we get international antiques people through regularly. <laughs> All the time. All the time. And he's trying to say like, ah, we, yeah, we don't really get the international trade in LA anymore. You know, who's just a little fucking hole, this little hole in the wall. Yeah. Who, who would go to LA? Who would go to Southern California? What's there to see in Southern California? There's no reason to go through Southern California. Certainly not the antiques. We don't get a lot of tourists in Southern California, you know? That's what I'm always hearing from my friends out there. <laughs> Certainly not international tourists in Southern California. I, I talk to my buddies out in Southern California and they're like, gosh, it's just so boring around here. There's no tourists. Yeah. Just tumbleweeds and palm trees, as far as the eye can see. <laughs> they keep saying someday the tourist train will come to Southern California, but hasn't yet. Someday, maybe. You know, I want a quieter life. I'm going to move out there someday. They're all flocking to a small city south of Boston for some reason instead. Yeah. Maybe it's the antiques, I don't know. I, like, I get that the industry slowed down for everyone, but, like, that's an, that's a bizarre way to say that. And also, like, patently untrue. But this came out in, like, 2015! If they had said, like, the economy means that we don't get as much, then I would have been like, alright, yeah, that's a broad stroke that's true of everything. You can get away with saying that. You can't tell me that nobody's storing LA anymore. Who visited LA in 2015? And then they were like, oh, it's because they're getting these kinds of antiques conventions in in, in Europe. They was, they was there first. They were having them longer. They used the word reputable? That the antiques conventions in Europe were becoming more reputable. Yeah. You know, there were fewer international <laughs> you know tourists in Southern California to go to the American Antiques Convention. You know, reputable? No, they weren't reputable. Before. Reputable. <laughs> you know, where some of these is. Those scallywag pirate antique shows in France, you know? I know their headquarters are New York now, but, like, they do know that where Sotheby's is from, right? Sotheby's and Christie's, yes. They know where Antiques Roadshow originated? And Christie's. Because it wasn't on this side of the Atlantic. <laughs> they do, because they, ref because they refer to it. The UK Antiques Roadshow, or as I like to call it, the disreputable Antiques Roadshow. Christie's was founded in 1700s, and only in the, our Lord year, our year of the Lord, 2015, had it really begun to create a reputation for itself. I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. For more on Christie's reputation, check out our episode on the history of Christie's. It's really fucking dumb. What? You, you know what? I think you're okay. I'm sorry. I, oh, I promise I wouldn't lose it again. Thinking about how nobody, you know, nobody's buying in America because Christie's and Sotheby's are finally reputable. But goddammit, it's just really easy to research is the thing. This is a super easy thing to know about antiques. So easy. So simple. But I guess it's a lot less simple when you have to write one draft in one day with no edits. <laughs> Certainly not for clarity or plot holes. I get getting the convention scene wrong because, like, yeah, you're not gonna, like, oh, you're gonna go find the nearest antique trade show that isn't, for some reason, relegated to just cereal boxes. That's a real thing. Fine, you use what you know. We'll all kind of just suck our breath in and, and pretend it's not happening. But, like, <laughs> come on. 
go to your local antique store and ask the person behind the counter, hey, I'm writing a book. Can you tell me any stories about what it's like to be an antique dealer? Because even in New England, the least friendly region in the entirety of the United States, the antique dealers love to talk about being antique dealers. Yeah, they'll draw your ear off for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> and if you don't know your local antique store, I question whether or not you care enough about antiques to be writing a romance novel that's antiques-themed. So, I don't want to get too far ahead, but, like, at the end there's a teaser for a continuation of this, like, setting, which takes place in the Chinese food store. And I think this was all a setup to get to that story, because the number of times that Chinese place comes up makes it pretty clear everyone wanted to be writing that story. See, my theory was that the romance novel about the Chinese restaurant had already been written, and that had established the setting for these stories to take place in. Oh, so this is promo material. I think so. I hope they're glad that um, we did mention it, so congrats. I mean, we've spent three entire episodes talking about their book, so maybe we've boosted sales, who can say? I hope so. Um, genuinely. I did catch also bolstering your, this is a book convention, and then you just plug and played a bunch of antiques. Like, I know that this is basically, like, nitpicking, but they refer to a bunch of hats from the Regency area as Regency romance hats. Yes! That stuck out, because there isn't a sub-era of Regency called the Regency romance era that explicitly refers to romance novels set in the Regency era. It does. For more on that, talk to me at any given hour on any given day. On any given subject. Because I have a lot to say about the history of the Regency romance genre. So yeah, this person literally, like, <laughs> I'm assuming they just had the phrase Regency romance scrawled so tight and deep in their brain that when they had to write the word Regency, romance just followed after like a lost dog against their will. And because this was written start to finish in a single sitting in a single draft with no editing, that stayed in! <laughs> and now it says the hat is Regency Romance, which I guess means you can read the hat like a book when you're done wearing it. I'd call Christie's for this, but they don't have a very good reputation. <laughs> I guess I like this book because it gave me way more antique stuff to be like, what? About? It's just such a Photoshop collage of... An L.L. Bean catalog, but someone has cut out, like, a few details from the cover page of Collectors Weekly and just, like, selectively glue-sticked it into the image. Yes. Yeah, very, very that. I don't know. I don't know, man. This book. Why was it written? Why is it here? And why is it like this? Why did they write three novellas about antiques? When none of them cared about antiques. Oh, I just, I have to get this out. I have to get this off my chest. There's a VIP luncheon at this antiques convention for reasons unknown to literally anyone. Because they happen at book conventions. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. That's, that is, for some reason, the VIP luncheon has non-VIPs in it and is also where they're holding the auction at the same time. Yes. So that's a lot. And But, like, only the VIPs get lunch, but there are non-VIPs there. And, like, I'm assuming the difference is that, like, they don't get lunch. <laughs> they just, like, sit there and watch the rich people eat. <laughs> Which is not how any convention works anywhere. PAX got weird this year, man. I don't know. <laughs> it's really, really fuck. We ran out of space. It got really fucking strange. We had to have all three events in the same room. Just, like, deal with it. 
What really chapped my ass about it was that the luncheon VIP tickets are expensive and the luncheon was like boiled chicken and steamed vegetables. Well, you know, Southern California is not famous for its cuisine. No, certainly not. Certainly not its fusion cuisine from its many immigrants. Certainly not. From the wide variety of cultures who all make their home there, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly not well known for the innovations that immigrants of various types have made over the years. It's mostly just steamed chicken and veggies. Disgusting. Where do these authors live? Where do they live and what pressed them to write about Southern California and specifically antiques in Southern California while not wanting to do any research about Southern California or antiques? (laughs) There was a lot of assumptions being made about a lot of things. I am confusion. I really like the scene where they describe the hero. I can't remember his name, which is like also just like- Henry Lancaster III. I'm surprised you forgot it because it's repeated about twice on each page. I remember the Lancaster part because I kept amending it with like Mark Lancaster, Pennsylvania III. (laughs) See, it just made me think of the Roar of the Roses because that had a lot of Henrys and a lot of Lancasters. Huh. It's two different minds, huh? Two kinds of people. (laughs) (laughs) Just daydreaming about Pennsylvania. But yeah, he says gorgeous darling in a thick Boston accent. Yes, that was so weird. And what part of that was supposed to be a Boston accent? That's not how you write out a Boston accent phonetically. Because what they've written is D-A-R-L-I-N apostrophe. That's a Southern darling. A Boston darling would be D-A-H-L-I-N apostrophe. Yeah. It's not darling. It's Dallin. Yeah. Th- all right. Thank you. I part of why I highlighted it was like, it's like Ken's a writer. He'd know like why this feels so bad. It's like, so weird. If you write out the word darling, I'm never going to assume it's in a New England accent of any stripe because we don't call people that unless we're actively flipping them off in traffic. It's true. Most people only have a Boston accent when we're angry. <laughs> no, I mean, we only call people darling sarcastically. I don't want to sign off on that entirely because I call people darling and sugar a lot, and that's entirely because I grew up around- You hang out with a lot of Southerners in the antiques industry. Yeah, I hung out with a lot of Southerners. Is the thing, and you've picked up on that. The rest of us, we're not doing that. <laughs> to say nothing of the embarrassing Britishisms that work their way into my everyday talk- The antiques industry will do some weird things to your diction. (laughs) But the stock Bostonian is not calling anyone Dallin unless he's also inviting them to suck his dick because they cut him off at a red light that he was intending to turn left on. (laughs) All right, yeah. Now that I'm picturing him saying, suck my dick, Dallin, like, yeah, it's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, now you can hear it in a Boston accent. (laughs) Yeah. This is less antiques related and more like human being related. I think you've probably read more romance than I have. Although probably not any more straight romance. I read a shocking amount of straight romance. It's part of my appreciation for the straights and their culture. Yeah, um, the thing with his ex-wife was really strange. Is that like a trope that I just haven't learned to appreciate? That your ex-wife would destroy your life, break your heart, cheat on you, and then when she comes back you would be like, I am so eager to get back with that woman. I haven't seen it before in another straight romance novel, no. Okay, so it is a novelty. I don't know if it's a novelty. I think it's a very specific subgenre because the thing with romance novel marketing is you tend to specify on the back of the book that like, oh, no cheating. No cheating in this book. You won't have to worry about anybody cheating on anybody. Yeah. And what they mean by cheating is the leads will never be even interested in anyone else. Which is troublesome. 
Like, that's our definition of cheating within the genre. And so what he does in this book would definitely not make people who want no cheating in romance novels happy because he kisses and goes on dates with other women while casually dating Kate. Which, again, for normal adult humans in relationships, if you're just going on a couple dates with someone and you haven't said, hey, we're monogamous or hey, I feel like this is getting serious, that's not cheating. You should definitely tell everyone you're dating that, hey, I'm also seeing other people. Especially if they're, like, fluids exchanged. But the act of going on several different dates with different people, when you're still in the beginning stages with all of them, that's not cheating. That's not stepping out on your wife with another woman, you know? There's a line there I feel like this doesn't really appreciate. There were elements of that that I enjoyed where, um... If his character had been written better. If we had understood why he wanted to date or not date any of these women. Yeah, like, I liked the idea. If we had understood what he found desirable in a woman other than she has personality and traits. Like, the hint of his conflict being born of his reluctance and his hurt from his previous marriage is all, like, 10 out of 10. You could absolutely run with that. But, like... There's literally a part where he talks about how he thought his ex-wife had changed and she'd apologize, but we get to see none of that. We're actually just taking his word for it that at some point she said, sorry for cheating on you, which just makes his entertaining the idea of dating her even more insane. His entertaining the idea of dating her revolves mostly around the, oh, we already have all of this shared history. It feels once again like he's getting into a relationship with a woman because of the path of least resistance. Which could be interesting to explore, but not here. Because doing some serious work on yourself and looking inward and figuring out what you really want out of life and what your desires actually are and what desire even is when you feel it for another person is not as easy as saying okay to one of the any three women who are offering to date you at the moment. So, I, I hate to become a parody of myself in this, but <laughs> if this had been a gay romance, it would have been way better. I don't understand. Because, like, those feelings of conflict and confusion and not being sure what it is about a person that you're attracted to, and, like, especially, like, the lines where he's talking about being attracted to Kate despite himself and not knowing why, like, all of this feels like beats that are better served in, like, a coming out story. I'm sorry. <laughs> Much like the other two stories in this trilogy, Kate gets some real not-like-other-girls moments. Yeah, oh, big time. Like when Kate and Henry are holding hands and debating whether or not they'll kiss a second time because, ooh, sexy. And Henry says, I like that you can tell me what you're feeling, he continued, threading their fingers together, making her heart beat faster. That you can tell me what you want. And she replies, I guess I'm not the normal woman. <laughs> I'm not like other girls. I'm baseline communicative about my emotions. What? Yeah. Yeah. What is the normal woman? Because I don't think I've ever met her. No, <laughs> I don't know that bitch. Maybe I'm spoiled for acquaintance, but all of the women I know are like upfront and direct and communicative about their thoughts and feelings. Like there is definitely pressure within society for women to put aside their own wants and needs and desires to serve the emotional needs of others. And certainly society doesn't encourage women to speak up. That doesn't mean the communication doesn't happen. It's just not happening, like, in a shout over what everyone else is saying, you know? 
Yeah, it is. It's just very unpleasant to have the narrative, like, actually sort of pivot the camera at it and see, like, unlike other women, when it's just like, all right, that's, all right, now it's weird. You made it weird. Now it's weird. Okay. I could get it if the dude was saying you're not like other women because you actually tell me what you're feeling. Because, like, again, women in our deeply sexist society are not encouraged to be upfront about their desires, especially when it comes to romantic partners, especially men. So if Henry was saying, you're not like other women, he would still be wrong, but I would get where he was coming from. Kate herself is saying she's not like other women, which means she believes that, unlike her, other women have either no interiority or no desire to communicate said interiority. He just, like, compliments her on an aspect of her personality that he appreciates, and she's like, yes, and you'll never find it again. Now kiss me, you slut. (laughs) They all listen to the Smiths. Yeah. Although in this case, they all listen to Imagine Dragons. They all listen to Imagine Dragons. <laughs> Probably like half our listeners going like, can I listen to Imagine Dragons and what? <laughs> hate Imagine Dragons. I also listen to Imagine Dragons and the Beatles. Hey, don't hate Imagine Dragons. I just find their presence in contemporary literature hilarious. <laughs> Please write them into more books. I'm begging you. I want the romance novel where the heroine is just a big fan of ghosts. She loves ghosts so much. She's been to like at least seven rituals. She fucking loves ghosts. Can't get enough of ghosts. It's her favorite band. She meets an antique dealer one day and he just gives her two tickets to another ghost ritual. <laughs> oh, well, see, now you're actually talking about something that would happen if you'd known me long enough and if I'd had a job. <laughs> you'd just be giving out ghost tickets? I would be the, like, I mean, if I couldn't go. Catch me at Brimfield handing out pairs of tickets to Within Temptation. <laughs> tickets to Within Temptation, yeah. Oh, man, so deep. Final thoughts on this final book in this antiques-themed romance trilogy? Um, wow, uh, the most misguided by far. No, that's the middle one. The middle child is the most misguided. We cannot forget. Oh. I I just, I, like I said, I don't think the middle child belongs here, and I think we should have rehomed it. Whoa! <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> I just think there's a better trilogy for it. <gasps> but um, this one was extremely misguided, and it probably would have benefited from not letting us get to know the antiques guy so that I wouldn't have known just how deeply wrong you were about it. <laughs> Um, How deeply the antiques dealer didn't care about antiques or particularly about dating women. There there was spots where I was like, oh, okay, you kind of get it. Notably, uh, there's just one where he talks about how his favorite part of being an antiques dealer is finding stuff for people, like being a scout. Yeah. Working with clients and getting them specific pieces. The, 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 the vibed. I vibe with that. Which is why I briefly thought this person knew anything about antiques, because that's a specific feeling. That not every career has. Yeah. Or just like uh, Henry's like general eye for detail. There's like a throwaway line where he talks about her ugly clothes looking simple, but like he could tell they were high quality, you know, through experience. Not to be that guy, but that's not an observation most straight men wake about women's outfits. Well, that's fair, but yeah. There are straight dudes who care about fashion. There are straight dudes who even care about women's fashion, but... When they're also antique stealers and bachelors, can you blame me for making assumptions? Like I said, uh, it's one easy way to fix this book, right? (laughs) I think you could fix this by making someone in it actually genuinely care about antiques. 
that weren't personally related to their family history. Can I just, like, I, you could hire me. Like, I'll charge you a reasonable hourly rate to just grill me about stuff. <laughs> I'm a decent editor. If you need, like, antiques editing specifically, like... AntiquesFreaksPodcast at gmail.com. Right in. <laughs> like, uh, overall, um, B minus. It was okay. <laughs> In terms of antiques, in terms of romance, I was really not getting what they liked about each other. But fine. Easily one of the books I've read in years. Easily one of the romance novels of all time. If you have a suggestion for a topic for us to cover or just want to say hello, you can email us directly at antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you liked us being extremely mean to straight people for about an hour, um, <laughs> go on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. We also have an Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks for a wide variety of vintage goods and t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them. Soon more clowns? More clowns soon. They are uh, drying. <laughs> so The clowns are drying. That's one of the more ominous sentences I've heard today. Stay tuned. I'm not a big fan of sending things out uncleaned. Rest assured, we will sell you only the cleanest clowns. <laughs> I'm gonna clean your clown does sound like a threat. We will clean your clown at <laughs> etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks. <laughs> we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks, where you can listen to us read a different book, namely Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood, a penny dreadful that is far more dreadful than Penny. We are on chapter 39, and, well, it's certainly something. <laughs> there are duels, there are vampires, there are sailors here for some reason. Here at this landlocked English country estate beset by vampires. But sure, I guess it's not any weirder than the cowboy and Dracula. Did no one tell you about the cowboy and Dracula? Because there's a cowboy and Dracula, and frankly, more people should be talking about it. But first, listen to Varney the Vampire with us, the Antiques Freaks, at... Patreon.com slash AntiquesFreaks. Special shout out to our current patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye.